Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and today I'm coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. We are joined today, as always, at uh, this time of the week with uh, uh, by uh, Ryan Goodman, of course, who is, I think, still in, in, in the New York metropolitan area from NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? I'm well, David. And uh, also here in D.C., as every week at this time, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, formerly of the Obama White House, a practicing physician. How are you, Kavita? I'm, I'm so happy you have graced our our lovely city. Very happy to host you, David. Thank you so much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here since I've lived here for the past 30 years. Uh, and a uh, special guest and friend and wise man, Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. He was the man you know, who's getting credit these days for being the first one to say that democracy was in the ICU, um, which he said many uh, years ago. I'm sorry you were right, Norm, but uh, we welcome you nonetheless. Thank you, David. Uh, and I'm sorry I was right, too. Uh, yeah. I'd much rather be ashamed that I was wrong. Well, um, no, no sign that that's happening anytime no. soon. And I thought this is something that we would discuss because, I, you know, I think periodically these episodes can be therapeutic. Of course, we have a doctor here to take care of anything that goes out of hand. Um, And for me, the therapy goes sort of like this. The Biden White House is doing pretty well. Unemployment is down 60% since he took over. Uh, Half of Americans have been vaccinated. The American Rescue Plan was passed. His approval rating is 62%. And so when I talk to Democrats, they kind of like, hey, things are going pretty good. Meanwhile, the Republican Party is systematically setting the stage for gutting the democracy, whether it's voter suppression bills, whether it's blocking reform bills in the Senate and the House, whether it's um, uh, you know, planning or you know, continuing with the big lie um, uh, that essentially has uh, a substantial number, as many as half of Republicans, not just thinking that Donald Trump won the election, mm-hmm. but, I, but I saw one poll where it said 66% said Donald Trump won and half of them thought he was actually the president of the United States <laughs> at the moment, um, which is disturbing. Um, and uh, you know, it looks like things are only gonna get worse and there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency about this. And so I guess my first question is, Norm, how quickly can you write another book about this? <laughs> 
You know, for a long time, I joked that uh, Tom Ann and I first did the Broken Branch, and then we did It's Even Worse Than It Looks, and it became It's Even Worse Than It Was in the uh, revision. And I would joke that the next one would be titled Run For Your Lives. Um, <laughs> we're already past that point. Uh, although, uh, you know, I must say, if uh, Trump had one re-election, and we have to remember it was a lot closer than uh, we think. Um, in terms of the ability of Republicans to overturn the results of the election. We can talk about that more, but they came close enough this last time. But we're at a crunch point and I think an existential threat to everything we believe in this country. And you mentioned uh, all of those laws that are being passed in states. And of course, it starts with the kind of voter suppression that uh, has its only rival in the Jim Crow laws of the segregationist South. But this has gone much further. They are passing laws that make it possible for states to uh, turn the ability to throw out votes to Republican partisans. In uh, Arizona, for example, they're taking away the ability of the Democratic Secretary of State, who ran a beautiful election this last time, to go to court if there are irregularities uh, that she sees and turn it over to a Republican hack, but only through this next cycle, uh, so that if the Republican gets elected as Secretary of State, they'll be fine. Otherwise, they'll renew it even further. We're seeing uh, a law in Georgia that if it had been in effect in 2020, it is virtual certainty that they would have denied uh, Biden the 16 electoral votes in Georgia. That would have left him with 290. And Pennsylvania, almost certainly under those circumstances, the Republican legislature would have put up an alternative slate of electors, meaning he had only 270, the exact number needed to win. And then I would bet a lot of money that whether it was uh, Charles Koch or somebody else, they would have been out there finding, perhaps with incentives, some rogue elector to get him the, below the 270 to turn the election to the House and where a majority of states would have put in uh, Trump. We're going to see this in 2024. And when you look at that, along with the rejection of a commission to look at the violent insurrection on January 6th, with another survey that I would mention, AEI, my uh, institution, is doing uh, monthly community surveys, good deep ones. And uh, almost two thirds of Republicans in the country said that if they saw a threat to what they perceive as their way of life, violence might be an appropriate response. That's the world we live in right now. We have a party that's become a violent cult. And uh, there's no sugarcoating this, and there shouldn't be any sugarcoating this. So have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, th I think that it's, it's urgent. I think it's every bit as urgent as you described, and that's why we're talking about it. I mean, and, and, I, and we could go on, Kavita. There mm -hmm. are other things we could mention. The fact that there's no uh, January 6th investigation is bad. The fact that there's no COVID you know, uh, uh, you know, bipartisan investigation is bad, but they don't want to have that because that that will reflect badly in this administration. We don't talk much about the census because the the, the administration uh, lost one particular case with the census, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they fiddled with the census, and we're about to move into a period where 
a bunch of states or blue states are going to lose some seats and red states are going to gain some seats. And with gerrymandering and Republican controlled states, uh, it looks like uh, that's another way to, you know, put their thumb on the scale. Um, and, you know, so if you, you know, you take these things and you, you, you take them in aggregate, we're in a crisis. And, 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 and Kavita, no one is talking about the crisis or very few, Norm is talking about the crisis. And obviously we're talking about it. But, but do you get sense, your friends, you have a lot of, you're well-connected in democratic circles. Do you get a sense that they view this as a moment of truth in which we could lose the whole ball of wax of American democracy? No, I think that uh, some of our mutual friends that all four of us uh, share who have deep ties to the democratic party, I, I've brought this up. I've been taking advantage of the fact that apparently COVID is over with and everybody's back to normal and everybody's meeting up and doing things and people are hosting gatherings. But I took advantage of one such gathering. It was a bunch of uh, Clinton, uh, Obama, more on the domestic policy side, but a kind of Clinton, Obama alumni, uh, more to kind of talk about just, you know, wow, what a difference an election makes. And I said, Am I the only person that thinks we're just going to get, you know, our asses handed to us in 2024? And by us, I mean Democrats and reasonable thinking people, uh, what few might be left on the Republican side. And and people said, no, you know, you're discounting. No, I, I received an incredible amount of blowback and pushback when I mentioned voter suppression laws. Um, the retort I heard, which scared me, David, and it'd be interesting to hear Norm to anybody's thoughts on this. They said, well, those are happening in states that always had some form of voter suppression. You can just kind of package it up in water distribution or something else, but it always happened. We have our strongholds and, and our conventional techniques have worked. And, and these were people who were on successful campaigns, including Biden's. And, and I just, I really had to take a step back and think, am I missing something? Are we all missing something? And it's some, anybody listening should be asking these questions even if the answers are insufficient, uh, which I found them to be, we're not asking the question enough, certainly not asking it of our leaders elected and those running for office. Uh, and and I, I think it'll be interesting, you know, Biden's put out the details a little bit of the $6 trillion budget request. Everything's getting lost right now in infrastructure retorts and this and that. If you're a Republican, that's just, that's noise because you're able to kind of think through your strategy for 24. And and, and I, I can't imagine that they're not. Um, I'd actually love to hear Norm's response to that uh, suggestion that these are just strongholds and and they're strongholds and these are pockets of uh, the country that have always practiced some form of suppression of the vote. Cause I, I saw you nodding um, in agreement uh, with Kavita and Norm. So, so I, I guess a, a couple of responses. One is I do see this not just with uh, some of those alumni. I don't see urgency in the White House itself. Mm -hmm. And I don't see urgency from Chuck Schumer uh, or other Senate Republicans. I've been gobsmacked, frankly, that they have followed the usual pattern with long recesses, uh, you know, a Wednesday, uh, Thursday schedule primarily, um, which means among other things that governance now, which is absolutely critical because we don't know how much time we'll have, um, is being uh, delayed because they have confirmed uh, very few of the nominees that they should have. Um, and 
remember, you've still got some Trump people who are impacted uh, in agencies. And if you don't have the political appointees there, they're going to slow things down. Um, so you've got that problem. Um, they haven't moved with dispatch to deal with the Joe Manchin problem to get beyond this so we can at least put some safeguards in place. But the fact is, you know, I'll, first I'll take you back to what I was saying earlier. If Georgia had not gone the way it went, if uh, let's say that Biden had actually lost by 16,000 votes instead of winning, I think we would have had an election thrown into the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. These are states, remember, yeah, we're talking about the Georgias and the Floridas and the Texases and the Oklahomas and the uh, Iowas, Iowa being a state that actually was a democratic state in uh, presidential politics uh, before uh, a long time. But we're seeing it in Wisconsin. We're seeing it in Michigan. We're seeing it in Pennsylvania. And while there are Democratic governors there, that may not last. And if they are able simply to take a couple of those states, let's say that the Democratic candidate wins in 2024 in those states, and they put up alternative slates of electors. And let's say that one of the two houses goes to the Republicans in 2022, then it's gonna be easy to have that election go to the House. And whatever happens in the House, Republicans are very likely to have a majority of states. And remember, if there's a contested election, then it's decided by the votes of individual states. You need 26. And if they've got 26 Republican majority states, then we lose anyhow. And there should be urgency surrounding all of this. Remember, we had the same sort of, uh, I would say, arrogant attitude going into 2016. We've got the blue wall. We don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Look what happened. Well, that you know, and that you know, that's that, that's the thing. Um, I don't know, Kavita, Ryan, do you, do you have a sense of why the de the Democrats are reacting this way? I saw an interesting, by the way, article by our friend Greg Sargent, who was on with us last week, today, just now, about a, a study about the. That, you know what worked and what didn't work during the last campaign, and it's it, I, I don't have all the data in front of me. Go read Greg's column, but it was something along the lines that the Democrats spent multiples of the Republicans on things like emphasizing bipartisanship and um, positive advertising, and the Republicans spent multiples of the Democrats on attack ads describing the Democrats as extremists. And they picked up multiple states. And then you look at you know, what's going on in the, around the negotiations regarding infrastructure, and it's Lucy and the football again. You look at McConnell, and McConnell has uh, apparently started calling people up and saying, as a personal favor to me, vote against this January 6th commission. And you know, I, I just what am I, what am I missing here? This seems so obvious on its face. Um, why why don't Democrats get it? I'll, go, I'll I'll I won't answer your question, David, too much to uh, dismay, but I, just to reinforce and bolster your question. So I don't have an uh, I cannot get an answer out of friends who work at DNC DSCC. And um, another great columnist who maybe we'll be able to invite on, James Homan, he had a column yesterday, day before yesterday, 
pointed out even more bleakly, like the president's party has kept House losses to fewer than five seats only five times in the 41 midterm elections since 1870. And all Republicans need to do to bring in divided government is five seats. And so I I'm just looking at numbers and I don't understand why people are not feeling this like small sense of doom that I have. And I have to believe, David, you started kind of with that top comment about you know, just Biden's, we, we've talked on this podcast about how it's been hard to criticize the ways he has approached many things, including COVID. And you got, I got to believe that that's like what's just coloring some of these people's kind of experiences, but it just seems incredibly naive and, and frankly troubling. So, yeah, I think that maybe there's a overconfidence of the idea that Biden will deliver these large packages of policies that resonate across a broad swath of the American public. And then that's uh, enough of a push um, for them politically. But I think that that does underestimate the information environment um, that we're really in, in terms of the level of disinformation and other people not seeing the world the same way that you see it and not in fact even being subject to the same information channels. Um, so that dimension of it worries me a lot. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, the idea that there's a large swath of the um, Republican Party that thinks Trump is president now. So for some reason, I got on a Trump campaign email um, listserv a while back, so I get that from time to time. So yesterday, I got one where he announces he's going to be giving a, a speech, a huge speech, all caps. This is my first presidential speech back with the American people, right? That's key words to those people who think he's still president. Um, either legitimately should be or actually is in some sense. Um, that's part of the, you know, this very out of whack information environment that we're truly competing in that I'm not sure that's uh, sufficiently understood. Um, so I do think that that's one of the major concerns. And then I guess the other one that I do wonder about, I wonder if this is something that people think about and it'd be great to hear anybody who has a reaction to this. Is there this complacency because the thought is maybe Trump taking over the Republican Party is a good thing? Mm -hmm. It means you get these Trumpists and extremists who will win their Republican primaries, and that will be uh, their death knell to it in terms of uh, the greater yield of uh, votes that they get for their, you know, trying to take over the House, for example, uh, with all of these Trump people instead of uh, more moderate types. Is that part of what? is maybe feeding the complacency? And how do you think about that argument? So uh, I do think that there's a, uh, a belief that the more they go crazy, uh, the better it's gonna be. Uh, of course, uh, one of the downsides of that is what we're seeing in Texas. Uh, Texas could be a template for the kind of governance we have if they actually win. Uh, and that's the kind of governance where you can carry a gun without a permit, without a background check, um, where you can be prosecuted if you try to have an abortion after rape or incest. Um, uh, and that's only the beginning of the, uh, they, they make Viktor Orban look like a liberal uh, down there. What we also know is that they had all kinds of extremists running the last time they didn't lose a single house chamber in a state house chamber, which is why they're gonna be able to do uh, a redistricting in a lot of states that matter 
that could squeeze out Democrats, no matter what kinds of candidates the Republicans uh, put up. Uh, and in a lot of these states, which you can say are uh, you know, normally Republican ones, they're targets we need for the Senate. Um, and you don't want to even just go forward with a 50-50 Senate. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other side of that argument, which I can ex uh, accept a little bit, I think the keys in the near-term future, if we assume the elections are even halfway reasonably fair, and if we assume that you know maybe there'll be margins large enough that even uh, their best efforts can't overturn them, are with those college-educated Republican voters who are going to be appalled by what they're seeing and by the, this internecine warfare that they're having. One where Marjorie Taylor Greene is treated with kid gloves and Liz Cheney is uh, shunned. Um, maybe that could help a little bit. But boy, I don't want to take chances with this. I mean, it seems to me, it, to me let's go back to the analogy of the uh, pandemic. You could look at a pandemic coming forward and say, as Donald Trump did, eh, you know, it's probably not going to be much. And even if it hits other countries, it isn't going to affect us. Or you can say, holy shit, this is going to be an absolute disaster and we need to get to DEFCON 1. We need to immediately turn to the kinds of principles that you use in a pandemic to keep it from spreading. I think you have too many Democrats who are in the Donald Trump mode with uh, our, the threat to our democracy, kind of saying, well, it's not going to happen here. It's happened elsewhere. And we've got ways of dealing with it. And that's not acceptable. So I want to circle back to Norm and follow up on this point. But I'm going to do it in a slightly unorthodox way, because I'm going to ask Kavita a question and Ryan a question that may not seem relevant, but I'll tie them together. <laughs> um, uh, Kavita, Ryan just spoke a moment ago about uh, the information environment. I had a conversation today with a prominent journalist from a prominent publication. And they were saying, well, you know, we had a meeting just now uh, and we realized how we, wrong we were about uh, the laboratory thesis for the Wuhan, uh, <laughs> you know, origin of the thing and that Trump was really right and that we were biased. And so we have to make up for that now because it's, it's clear that he was wrong. Now, you're the doctor, but mm -hmm. I have seen no factual information that supports the laboratory thesis right now. It, I mean, it's a, you know, there are possibilities, but the, this is just, a, my, it goes to my point that there are Democrats, there are people, there are journalists, there are objective people bending over backwards right now I mean, can you imagine how it reads to Republicans to have somebody say, oh, yeah, Trump was right? Yeah, and it's been propagated, as you know, all through standard media, social media. Um, MSNBC, like, has asked if I would talk about it. And I said, like, we're just giving, like, more attention to, like, Donald Trump. Just like, how did this become Donald Trump is right? Just because I said the little boy who like screamed fire all day might have been right one of the hundred times right, that doesn't dismiss no, there, there the destruction no he's done and there, there is, is no evidence yeah let me let me even say for for listeners the thing that those of us who i i think it's perfectly appropriate that we have like some like 90-day investigation period the who has lost credibility because of how they feel they've conducted it fine 
the bottom line is that for this to be a leak from like what's considered a biosafety level four, which is the highest, like kind of we're talking handling Ebola, handling coronavirus, all these types of things, labs, and that somehow some people got sick and were taken to like a regular hospital and that those, rec I mean, there are so many things that just do not have face value and face credibility to your point, David, that it somehow feels like more people are trying to respond to the, oh, Donald Trump may have been right. And we should take a look at ourselves as the media. Then they're looking at the actual facts and, and Ryan's exactly right. I'm, I no longer know how to label something misinformation because I feel like people just don't even understand how to make, um, educational kind of inquiry or or look for data to support anything whatever policy that might be or or stance and i you're exactly right and and how tom cotton did you read that the post is it the post or one of the publications i i, I can't even remember you know tom cotton may have been correct and i said where, where did this become less about the facts and laying out the sequence of events versus what Donald Trump or Tom Cotton said. I mean, this makes well, well, zero also, sense. To I me. mean, you know, our our uh, our producer colleague Chris Cottmore just, you know, sent a text, and I, I'll read it to you. It says, "Freaking Nate Silver tweeted that origination from the lab was potentially fifty percent likely with anecdotal data." It's not. <laughs> it's complete bullshit. It's not. We we don't know. No, you're, you're, you're right. Know. You're right. And as I mean, and as a journalist I know pointed out, it took us 14 years to figure out the origins of SARS. And so, by the way, I do think this is let me put on I I like never to predict, but I predict we'll get to I think there's like part of this is like political genius of Biden to just say, I don't want this to get out of hand and I'm putting it to rest by saying that I'm gonna call on all my best like security experts to do this for 90 days. David, you know this world I mean I don't know the security world as well, but you know it's smart for him to try to just head off whatever insanity could come out of any congressional inquiries and just say, this is what we're gonna do. At the end of the day, I doubt they're gonna say, here's our definitive proof and here's exactly what you need to hear to feel better about it. Um, so they, they, they can't, because, because they can't, right, that's the point. It requires right. multiple human sources. They're never gonna that's get right. it. So, That's so, exactly so right. next, next, next question, and this again leads us back to Norm with the sort of the big finale question here. But, 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 but Ryan, one of the reasons that some Democrats feel confident right now is they think, well, Cyrus Vance has got a grand jury going, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the, you know, Trump's going to get indicted and he's going to go to jail, or, or, or you know, you know, uh, you know, whatever. You know, there's other juries out there. There's other investigations that are going on and so forth. Um, how, you know, when somebody says, oh, don't worry about it because he's going to be in jail, what's the appropriate response? Um, yes, but we don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> the appropriate response is, um, I do think that that could take a very, very long time before there's any such thing as an indictment. Um, and then the second is, I think that um, it can play either way that uh, if you understand the information environment in which he's working, to have New York politicos try to use the justice system against him when he is right at this moment polling as the lead candidate in a, in a Republican presidential primary, they're out to get him. They know just how much of a threat he is to Joe Biden. It actually elevates him and puts him back into the 
limelight in a certain way that I think could favor him um, in, a, in a certain sense. So I, I don't know if how people can exactly predict how it would even play out were he to be um, indicted in the near term. Um, that said, I do actually think there's a high likelihood that something very significant like that is going to come out of the uh, New York um, Manhattan District Attorney's Office before the end of this year. Yeah, well, and, and there's another component of it, which is um, the Republicans will say, well, you did that to Trump. It's completely within our rights to go and do that to the next Democrat in one way or another. And, you know, even if the Trump investigation is based on facts and the next one is based on politics. But, but I, you know, I, I, I look at these things, Norm, uh, as, as, as further factors um, that are coloring you know, either are, are numbness to the current debate. And I, I want to put a question to you and, and this be kind of, I don't know if it's our final question, but it's sort of the central theme here. And, and, and that is, there are a lot of Democrats talk about, you know, are going to win or lose in 2024. There are fewer Democrats who recognize that whether we win or lose in 2022 is going to be in some ways dispositive to what happens in the rest of the Biden administration and perhaps in 2024. And that 2022 is a really, really big deal. But I, 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 th I think what I'm hearing from you and, and, and reading in the paper is that we could lose this in 2021 mm. and that in 2021, things can happen that you know, in, in result in the die being cast with regard to districts, laws, precedents, um, uh, lack of investigation, things we don't do that we should have done, uh, lack of challenges to the filibuster that then lead to the inability to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or some, some other forms of reform. You know, not just things that, we, that, that happen in this year, but things that don't happen in this year that end up resulting in losses in 2022, and by 2024, you're back um, with a Trump or a Trumpist as the president um, of the United States. What, what, what do you think about the thesis that we could actually lose this this year? I absolutely agree, and it's why I am frustrated with and baffled by the failure of the Senate, for example, to, go, to be in session at least five days a week and uh, cranking through judicial confirmations. We haven't talked about the role that the courts will play in this and the Supreme Court that will probably let them do any kind of voter suppression or autocratic action that they want. But we need to do more with the courts. We need to get those nominees in place. We need to move as rapidly as possible to get Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema on board to at least some kind of reform of the rules of the Senate so that you've got a fighting chance to get some voting reform. And uh, I, you know, we know that the cycle in a, a, a session of Congress, by the time you get close to the second year, everybody's already thinking about reelection. If there are things that you haven't accomplished or that are in any way controversial, they get gun shy uh, instead of forging forward and, and uh, really creating the best record that they can. So it's a tight time frame. But I also want to circle back to follow on what Ryan said. You know, we've had a dilemma from the start here because the Trump administration is by many, many miles 
the most corrupt administration in the history of the United States. It's not just the president and his family and the White House, it's virtually every cabinet member. You can't look at a cabinet member uh, without finding some questionable or clear violations of ethics, norms, and laws. You've got Wilbur Ross who lied to Congress and God knows what um, insider trading we have. We have the dealings that Elaine Chow had with her family. We have uh, Steve uh, Mnuchin uh, probably using his official office to pave the way for more business when he leaves office. We've got Bill Barr, why he has still has a license to practice law is absolutely beyond me, and on and on and on. And the problem is, if you do the right thing and go after those who deserve it, it really does look like you are a banana republic uh, regime that's punishing your uh, adversaries who lost. And going after Trump, which we need to do, which we should do, he needs to suffer the consequences of his uh, miscreants, but it's gonna reinforce for Republicans that, well, look at what they're doing, we can do anything we want. And the fact is, if he's taken out of the picture, and if Don Jr., who clearly seems to be liable, especially on the huge amounts of money corrupted, misused during the uh, inauguration period, uh, and the uh, transition period, uh, if all of them get punished, we're left with a field of candidates, the Tom Cottons uh, and Josh Hawley's of the world and the uh, uh, DeSantis's, whose main pitch is gonna be, I'm younger, I'm smarter, I'm more vicious, I'm tougher than Donald Trump. So I don't look at uh, you know what Cy Vance is doing, and I'm not a huge fan given that he let Don Jr. and Ivanka off the hook uh, years ago when they were clearly liable for defrauding uh, their customers. Uh, but as he moves forward, I'll get some satisfaction if their justice is served. But anybody who thinks that that's gonna solve the larger problems that we have is missing uh, the reality. Um, no, 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 no doubt. I think that's exactly right. We've got five, seven, eight minutes left to go. I, I'd like to turn to Ryan and Kavita and ask each if you've got a question for Norm. Uh, let me start with you, Ryan. So in the next 24, 48 hours, it looks like the Senate will uh, not pass legislation to set up the January 6th commission. Uh, Norm, you had a great interview with Greg Sargent um, a few days ago about plan B. What, ha what happens in the wake of no independent January 6th commission? And I, and I know that you thought dismally of um, congressional investigations or a House Select Committee, but if there is a House Select Committee, I'd just love to hear your, your thoughts about how that could best be done. Uh, so for example, does that maybe give them an opportunity to have legal counsel ask questions rather than the five minute rule? Does it give Nancy Pelosi an unusual opportunity to maybe have some of the slots filled by Republicans? Like she could actually pick Liz Cheney to counteract what you identify mm -hmm. you know, as Kevin McCarthy filling out all the other Republican slots with um, denialists. Um, so how would you advise as to how that could best proceed if that is the path that they do choose? So there are ways in which you can make a select committee work better than the commission that's likely to be shot down in the Senate. 
which has uh, been set up to have an equal number of Democrats and Republicans to take away uh, subpoena authority from uh, the Democrats and require Republican buy-in, um, which does have McCarthy and McConnell pick the Republican members. The Speaker, uh, under the rules of the House, has a great deal of authority to propose a select committee in the rules however she wants. It still has to be voted on, but if you keep your party together, you can make it happen. Certainly, you want to do it with a very uh, large number of Democrats and a very small number of Republicans. In theory, you could do it with the Speaker appointing the Republicans. You know, the, the danger you run into there is that, uh, or you could do it with just Democrats. The danger you run into there is that it's going to give them a lot of grist and they're going to have huge amounts of money and lots of opportunities to uh, discredit it with that larger mass of voters, not the Republicans who would be perfectly happy if we uncovered the fact that Donald Trump arranged all of this, planned it in advance, and uh, gave the bullets to uh, some of the Proud Boys to try and shoot Mike Pence and some of the others. They wouldn't care. But there's many voters who are looking to see what happened and, and how it happened. Uh, you don't want to discredit that. At the same time, you can give the chair subpoena authority. You do have instances in the House and Senate where chairs have unilateral subpoena authority. The biggest problem I have is the congressional subpoena power is a weak power. Um, one, we know that uh, where it's been used in the past, this happened over and over in the Trump administration. It happened before that too. People defy congressional subpoenas. They get a uh, citation for contempt in Congress. Congress theoretically has the capacity to arrest those people, send the sergeant at arms and throw them into a jail in the Capitol, but they don't do that. And you can drag it through the courts for years. And you can only subpoena witnesses. It's much harder for Congress to subpoena documents or to seize as the uh, uh, federal prosecutors did with Rudy Giuliani, computers, phones, iPads and the like, because it's likely that the, the most significant and damning evidence here is gonna come from the phone traffic, the text traffic, the email traffic, going back and forth between some of the insurrectionists and some members of Congress and some in the administration. I'd love to get, for example, phone records from Cash Patel and others in the uh, Department of Defense who were put in place primarily to keep National Guard troops from getting to the Capitol to protect it. Who was involved with that and who knew about it? And congressional subpoenas are gonna have a hard time getting to that. And of course, even if you can subpoena people and they come, they can plead the fifth. It's much harder if you're doing it in front of Justice Department prosecutors. So that's why my plan B has the Justice Department and the Attorney General create um, uh, an entity with some teeth behind it. And there are different ways of doing it we could go into more detail. I don't want the president doing a commission. You know, presidents have done that before. The Kerner Commission was a presidentially uh, picked, uh, nominated one, because I don't think Joe Biden should have his fingerprints on this. But I also don't want the White House to be indifferent to the need for this to happen. And I would hope that Merrick Garland would see that this was extremely important and find a way within the regulations to make something else happen. So a select committee is uh, an option, 
that certainly could be done and Pelosi would have the votes and she's tough enough to make it as strong as it could possibly be. But I don't think it's strong enough for what we need. Kavita, last question. Very briefly, Norm, um, I want to return to something that's somewhat related around the filibuster you wrote, you've written before and feels like that level of conversation has also kind of died its own quiet death. But I thought you put forward some very thoughtful, you know, you don't have to end the filibuster, you just kind of have to gut it to end it. Um, talk about where you see, talk about if you think like I do, if democracy is in the ICU, even a conversation about the filibuster is, you know, in a graveyard, so to speak. So talk about your outlook on that briefly. So, you know, I was a little angry with the editors of the Post because they uh, titled the piece, uh, you know, in effect, you don't have to kill the filibuster, you can gut it. I didn't want to use that language because mm -hmm. I was trying to communicate with Joe Manchin. Yeah. And Manchin, of course, has said, I don't want to uh, eliminate it and I don't want to weaken it. So my whole thrust has been, we're not going to weaken it. We are going to restore it to its original purpose. And the whole point was to try and appeal to what he had said and written for so long. And that is, you want the filibuster to put the burden on the minority and make it a heavy burden. And if you really want to get an incentive for bipartisan agreement, you have to have them pay a price where they're going to say, okay, we don't want to keep going into round the clock sessions and being back on Mondays and Fridays. Let's work something out. Uh, so uh, that's been out there. People have, uh, who are close to Manchin have communicated with him. It's not uh, off the table for him. Even as he says flatly, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to do anything. But I do think we may be at a crunch point here. And one of the benefits, if uh, in fact, this uh, commission plan goes down on a filibuster, mm -hmm. where Manchin issued a statement saying, there is no good reason for any Republican to oppose this. Hmm. You, we gave you everything you wanted. That that will be one strong piece of evidence that he's not dealing with uh, a party with, as he says, 10 people of good faith. And I think we need more. I mean, frankly, I have wanted uh, Chuck Schumer to move uh, before now with the Manchin-Toomey uh, gun bill, uh, because that's Joe Manchin. It's thoroughly bipartisan. And if they filibuster that one again, 94% of Americans support a background check. That's another piece of evidence that they're not going to play along and you've got to make some changes. And we're not going to get him to eliminate the filibuster. You know, if there were 53 Democrats, we'd be in a very different world than we are with 50. But if they don't change the rule, where now the burden is entirely on the majority and the minority has no reason uh, that it can think of not to uh, use it as a weapon of mass obstruction, and we can see also where the flaw is in Manchin's argument right to begin with. So we have a provision that enables a majority vote, and that is reconciliation. Okay, Joe Biden made it very clear to Republicans with the rescue package as he's making it clear with the infrastructure package. I can get 50 votes, but I'd love to make some concessions and work with you if you want to be reasonable. And they've been completely unreasonable. It's a kabuki dance of offering faux proposals 
And unfortunately, one thing we haven't talked about today is the compliance of the press in going along with this false equivalence narrative as if they're making good faith efforts to compromise. This latest proposal on infrastructure involves a trace element of actual real money going in. They're diverting all the money from the COVID response and relief uh, package. And they don't have a, a serious tax proposal. They want to put all the burden back on uh, poor people and uh, middle class people. Um, so it's not good faith stuff. And we've seen that, but you need to demonstrate it to him more. And I'm not willing to give up and believe that when he says flatly, we're not going to change it, that he means they're not going to do any kind of a change. But we got to lay the groundwork for making that happen. And finally, I would just say, if we don't, there is no chance of getting anything involving voter protection. That's not enough because they're willing to overturn elections, even if the vote is overwhelmingly for Democrats. But we've got to make sure that those voter protections are in place or we're almost certain to suffer defeats in 2022 and 2024. And the time is getting short. And there you have it. Worry about 2024 to be sure, worry about 2022 to be sure, but 2024 and 2022 and our future are gonna be determined in 2021. So focus yep. on what we can achieve and what we might not achieve and what is at stake in 2021. Uh, that's why I think this discussion was so important. That's why we're so glad that you could join us today. Again, Norm, uh, I am so grateful for the contributions, of course, of Kavita and of Ryan, uh, and for all of you for joining us. Now, you know, once you've stopped listening to this, go out there and do something, interact with your congressperson, interact with your neighbors, uh, but we need to start getting some motion. Uh, we need to have a sense of urgency. We're going to lose a lot. We're going to lose things we never thought were losable. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much, everybody, uh, for listening. If you want more on what we've got coming up, go to the DSRnetwork.com. If you want to support this, click on membership, support us. Um, and uh, in the interim, uh, take care of yourselves and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.